Hello, I'm Paul George. Welcome to this, which is the second in our series of podcasts on trade matters. Today's conversation is going to be about the trading relationship between Canada and the US and what we here in the UK can learn from that experience. I'm delighted to have with me today Libby Mason, uh, our trade policy and risk expert here in the UK, who actually started her career in the Canada Border Services Agency. Sandra Papatello, former trade minister for Ontario and special advisor to PwC Canada, who's joining us from Toronto, and Jeffries Brigginshaw, CEO of British American Business. Uh, thanks for joining me, all of you. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Um, so Libby, start us off. Why should the UK be interested in this? And what is it about the Canada-US trading relationship that's really relevant here? Well, I think um, when we look at the the way that Canada and the U.S. trade with one another, uh, it is a really interesting thing for the U.K. to think about because uh, when the U.K. is looking to leave the EU uh, and to have the stated objectives of a deep and comprehensive free trade agreement uh, complemented by customs agreements, this is in fact what uh, is, is how the Canada and the U.S. trading relationship is defined. And so we have the North American Free Trade Agreement, which is our version of, you know, uh, our free trade agreement between Canada and the U.S., which covers agriculture goods, uh, investment, and uh, the movement of certain labor categories, uh, as well as uh, customs arrangements, which in the case of Canada the US, we're not inside of a customs union, so we do have independent trade policies, um, but there has been a, a lot of work over, um, over the past to make sure that uh, our customs uh, regimes are working in collaboration with one another. And what was the process like of getting there? <laughs> Very long. <laughs> um, you know, I think this is something that's evolved over time. And, you know, obviously NAFTA uh, started out as an automotive agreement, um, you know, well back before the 1994 NAFTA uh, that we know sort of today alongside Mexico. Um, you know, so this is something that has been built up through a number of iterations over quite a long period of time. Um, building and deepening the relationship around the free trade aspects of NAFTA, um, you know, removing more and more non-tariff barriers, making the rules of origin more streamlined, um, and expanding that scope. And so that's something that really, you know, uh, was eliminated over time, especially in the agricultural space. That was some of the areas that were the last um, sort of uh, areas to become liberalized as, as there was the implementation period of NAFTA as you went through. I think when you look at the customs side around some of those other agreements that uh, are working hand in hand to facilitate trade between Canada and the US, um, there were uh, agreements around doing advanced passenger information with the airline industry decades ago. Um, and these are really strengthened around uh, security as, as a big concern, uh, especially following 9-11, uh, there was a lot of effort that was put into pushing the border out um, and facilitating trade. So uh, there has been a lot of investment that's been put into to making that, that whole system work over a number of years. Uh, Sandra, coming to you next, uh, from a Canadian perspective, is, is this a good deal? Um, and, and how did the government go about sort of shaping its strategy going into these, this whole process? Well, for NAFTA, it certainly was a development. They already had existing relationships because of the Canada-US free trade agreement. So the big focus was how you incorporate a third country. And interestingly, uh, one country that really was seen as still developing 
and uh, so they would have things like lower wage rates in Mexico versus Canada and the U.S. So there was a great deal of concern and focus uh, for the northern countries about how we were going to incorporate fairly so that everybody would benefit. And that, frankly, was always the subject of what became quite politicized of where are the jobs going. Uh, in hindsight, we could honestly say that the jobs really changed in our marketplace more uh, technology than to jobs moving to different places, although that did certainly happen. So it really was a growth from Autopact initially, which was industry specific for the automotive industry between Canada and the US, jumped to the Canada-US Free Trade Agreement, and then up to NAFTA, which frankly was a conversation that was started between the Prime Minister and the United States President um, being asked by Mexico, can we participate? And that really was how it all started uh, amongst the three leaders uh, that we should all sit down and have this discussion. Yeah, and that's a pretty broad agenda, isn't it? How, one of the big topics over here at the moment is, is how industry should play into this conversation. How did the Canadian government handle that? How did it draw industry in to get their expertise into the debate? So we are really challenged to bring industry back to the table to start talking about things that really were never part of the earlier conversation. So I think UK can benefit from seeing that, um, that it isn't just about a car or the makeup of a car crossing the border how many times it really is that in those years of the 80s we didn't talk about electronics and the great part of componentry that that makes it isn't even part of the nafta discussion um, or counted as parts if you will has changed uh, that I'm not sure it's worthwhile to use that model necessarily uh, but really to say okay we have a clean slate here get industry into the table, ask them very clear questions about how they interact with the EU today. I am mindful too that or what we learned was put them in a room where they can be comfortable to give you information that they would not otherwise talk about in front of their competitors. So if you want true information, uh, find a way to speak to key players of every industry to say, okay, give us the straight goods here. How many people do you employ? What kind of people are they? What level of expertise do you have? That's really interesting. And I think the environment points are a very telling one. Um, inevitably, there'll have been some points which some sectors where the challenges were particularly deep. I mean, where was this really contentious when Canada was doing, doing this with the US? Um, I would say something seemed to live forever and softwood lumber disputes is our best example. Um, you know, still to this day, you will have people in the southern states say that the Canadians ruined them. And uh, to this day, you will have people in BC uh, that say that suggest the same. So um, fortunately for Canada, we won every dispute at every level, at every tribunal over, for decades. Um, so we think that we're right, of course, and certainly the Americans think that they're right. Uh, this will continue. It has raised its ugly head again. Um, and it really comes down to accusations of subsidy and you're you're giving them subsidy and you're not telling us about it. Uh, the other big area I would say is dairy. And uh, I always like the phrase, it's always about the cheese. <laughs> and I suspect that that's going to be the case uh, when the UK starts talking to the EU as well, because I think arguably Brit the Brits, uh, they've got great cheese. So those dairy issues, uh, the, the you know, milk, quotas for milk, uh, etc., will raise its ugly head. And I suggest that those will be the most 
difficult of conversations. Well, well, well there's a thought to conjure with. Jeffries, um, turning to you, let's talk a bit from the US angle. Um, why are the US sort of coming back to revisit this? What's the problem with it from their perspective? So first of all, great to be with you. Thank you very much for inviting me on. And I have uh, a lot of members with US who are US headquartered. And so I'm pretty much daily familiar with the discussions that are going on around NAFTA. Um, where's the, where does the problem come from? I, I guess the starting place, the charge sheet, if, if you want, is that NAFTA has destroyed US jobs and suppressed US wages. Uh, of course, Sandra's uh, discussion and description of the GDP effect uh, is quite right. But in Rust Belt states, which have uh, political significance in US politics, uh, that story uh, has come out a little bit differently. One, because there have been losers, there's no doubt about it. But two, because that story about losers is also a story about the distribution of the benefits of globalization, the distribution, if you want, of the GDP story that Sandra re re really talked about. So that's produced a, a problem. Uh, politics is responding to that. Um, we have Trump, uh, whose bark may be uh, bigger than his bite, but certainly has created drama. Uh, I, I, I certainly feel that that drama is beginning to uh, develop into business as usual in trade terms, but certainly uh, the incoming administration has signified its intention to revisit questions about what is trade policy designed to do for the US and whether NAFTA, for example, is in the best interests of US citizens and um, has, he, has n notified an intention to want to revisit it. Uh, and then, of course, um, at the same time, there are the sectoral disputes, which have always been there, were there uh, before NAFTA, continue to be there, whether that's softwood, timber, Wisconsin dairy uh, exports, um, manufacturers that involve China, et cetera, et cetera. So net, um, there's a perceived problem with, with, with NAFTA. Um, but but where, where are we? Uh, I, I think that that is netting down into, on one side, actually a perfectly normal uh, deliberation around how and when to modernize a trade agreement NAFTA that's been there for 25 years uh, uh, from a world before digital business etc etc so there's every reason why in the normal course of trade policy and trade relations between countries you'd want to revisit that and um, but also to to take into account the politics of the moment and the ongoing uh, if you want uh, sectoral issues which which always come up and which are always resolved with you know leverage negotiation lobbying um, and uh, political pressure and uh, new kid on the block a president who really certainly can add communications power so I mean the the wider political environment I mean is very very audible over here I mean how about business where is business on this uh, Business is pretty much in favor of, uh, of NAFTA for, for the obvious reasons that it has benefited from it. I think it's very much in favor of a matter, NAFTA modernization, certainly as a, an alternative to a repeal. And we had uh, NAFTA day, or, or and I think that was the April, April 26th, when there was the prospect of an executive order being signed by the president, which at the last minute wasn't signed. Um, that on the occasion, despite the kind of what we gather is the ideological pressure from folk like Steve Bannon, the voice of 
other folk in the administration who pointed out that some of the Rust Belt jobs that are there might go as a result of a NAFTA repeal, but also the voices of business. And this is the point that business was absolutely uh, engaged, mobilized across all the major business organizations, all the major sectors to say to the president, you do not need to repeal this. We're happy for you to renegotiate and modernize, but repeal would be a really bad idea. And he didn't do that. Uh, they faced him down. And uh, that seems to be the flavor of things, that we're emerging into a kind of more normal approach to trade policy, in, in my view. So a unified voice, really important then. And a unified voice on behalf of the business community. Now, that business community is largely made up of major corporations. Uh, at the other end, clo the closer you get to Rust Belt communities and sectors that are uh, disproportionately s suffering, then you can get a different voice, obviously. But the vast proportion have been in favor. Libby, back to you. Uh, fascinating conversation. What are the, what's the sort of key lesson that the UK should take away from this going into uh, the talks we're going through at the moment in Europe? Well, I think from my perspective, uh, having worked in an administration that's been, uh, you know, uh, working with business on on customs and on on trade policy, uh, it's not all about the free trade agreement. You know, I think that is a really important thing to unlock the ability of two countries to trade with one another. Um, but I think you need to think beyond that around uh, customs arrangements and and technology and uh, things like that that can help to make sure that you facilitate your trade arrangements with other countries. And Sandra, coming back to you, from your experience, if you could give one piece of advice to the UK at the moment on planning our trade deals, what would it be? Taking advantage of um, experiences that we've had, uh, and I think rightly in incorporate people, security and trade all in that same conversation. So if you're going to start making agreements, make sure that the people also can cross the border as needed for their businesses and that takes a certain kind of rule that frankly the EU as a group hasn't needed for a long time. And likewise on security with that ease of people and goods, uh, you've had less of a logistical issue in having to check security because you've had essentially a big perimeter around the EU historically and now the, the, the Brits have to sort of rebuild that into their systems. But um, I think uh, technology being what it is, you have an opportunity to do that with uh, a shorter time period with great technology uh, to do that. Ultimately, uh, the best advice I think is bring industry in early, ask key questions in an environment where the competitors feel confident to actually speak truth to the government. Um, ask key questions of that industry. Uh, where are the jobs? What kind of jobs uh, do you represent? Uh, and understand the supply chain that's related to that industry so you truly know the full effect. Uh, what's the impact on natural resources? If that's the feedstock going in, uh, what is going to happen all the way down the line? Um, I do think experiences around the world uh, there are thousands more trade agreements than there were uh, before the EU was started. So I think we can take advantage for the UK and use all of the best information. Fantastic. And Jeffrey, it's a final word from you. In two words, be realistic would be my advice. Uh, picking up on what Libby said, there are lots of things that don't depend upon competence. For example, formal trade competence that exist in the round of an economic relationship. Think about those things because competence may take a long time. 
Um, and when you are thinking about trade negotiations, particularly when you're thinking about trade negotiations with the US, also be realistic that this may be difficult to sell on the doorstep. Then the politics of this trade deal may be extremely difficult. Uh, and be realistic about uh, the economic scale of the partner with whom you're negotiating. Size matters in trade negotiations. The US economy is an economy six times the size of the UK, which roughly means that for every sector, US sector, they'll want six times as much than we're going to get. So that means lots of thinking about whether we want US uh, chicken, uh, US agriculture, and, and whether there are defensive interests that can be balanced with the offensive gains and, and that there's a winning formula there. And, and that winning formula would be more difficult than people imagine. Well, thank you all. Um, that's been a really interesting conversation. I've certainly learned, learned a lot, not least the strategic importance of cheese and much more food for thought more generally for us here in the UK. Thank you all for listening and join us again soon for the next in our series on Trade Matters. Don't forget, you can access all our podcasts, blogs and events at pwc.co.uk slash trade matters.